From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. And welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. In each episode, our special guest brings with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our guest is author, columnist, and comic book writer Jude Ellison S. Doyle. He's the author behind nonfiction books like Trainwreck, The Women We Love to Hate, Mock, and Fear, and Why, and Dead Blondes and Bad Mothers, Monstrosity, Patriarchy, and The Fear of Female Power. His latest is the folk horror comic, The Neighbors. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for joining us. We're really, we're really stoked to chat with you. And uh, I, so it's, it's so funny because you sent us the first three issues of The Neighbors and I was so enwrapped with it that I ended up buying the rest (laughs) so I could see how it ended. So... (laughs) So that is a true story, true story. But for our listeners that might not have had a chance to read it yet, can you kind of tell us what it's a little bit about? I'm so glad that my long con worked on you. It sure did. It sure did. (laughs) I'm going to a comic book store this weekend to also buy a copy. So congratulations. You got two new. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to tell my bosses they're going to be really happy with me. But... um, (laughs) But, okay, so The Neighbors is about a family that moves to an old house in the woods in a remote town where not everything is as it seems, which is, like, to me, that's just, like, a classic domestic horror setup. You love that. It's great. I wanted to do that with characters that aren't normally in that sort of horror setup. I wanted a queer family. I wanted a mixed-race family. Because I wanted to explore what's a very pressing problem for me, which is how creepy it is to live in a small town when you are the only person like you that anyone knows. Yeah. And I think that I don't want to spoil every single thing about the story, but it's folk horror. It's based a lot on especially old Irish stories and some old Scottish and English stories that I loved growing up because the thing about fairy mythology is that like if you sit with it long enough it's just fucking terrified you're not supposed to call them fairies first of all 
That's not what they are. They're just other people who were here first, and they have rules, and if you don't follow them, your life is over, and that's all, you know? So I'll give you that much of the story and let you figure out the rest on your own. I mean, it worked because I literally was like, I think I know what's happening, but I needed to know more. And so that's, that's why <laughs> you got me. So <laughs> this is your second graphic, not a second graphic novel. It's the second. Yeah. Second. And it was a limited series. Both of them were first. Yeah. 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 And I, what I really love about this graphic novel is that, you 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 have like an intimacy between the parents and especially when you show them like the wife helping her husband uh with tea his um his injections and i love seeing that in the comic like horror comics and horror in general you know again like just like normalizing everyday experiences and like you were saying you know addressing getting these kinds of medicines in small towns and being different in a small town and i just it's amazing to see that integrated into the horror genre. And I was just curious more about like adding, obviously using that in here and incorporating it into the world of horror in a way that we don't really see a lot in the genre right now. Right. Um, Well, that scene actually is, it's slightly embarrassing for me because I had just switched to injections, like when I wrote it and my husband was still helping me get it in my leg. And I've since learned that nobody else gets someone to help them put it in their leg. But I was just like, oh. no, the character as written is a giant baby. He still has his wife oh, helping him. That's so funny because <laughs> not to like out my friends, but like my friend's wife still helps her do injections. <laughs> <laughs> You're not alone. <laughs> I was so like just just correcting the record. I can now put a needle in my own leg. Thank you. I'm a grown up. I- <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, that that's like, especially if you don't like, I don't like needles. I would have a hard time. I would want to have someone else helping me do that. So yeah. I, I completely get it. <laughs> like it really is like, it's, it's like the psycho thing. Like you really do just have yeah. to like swing to break this, uh. you know? <laughs> See, I'm a big baby when it comes to needles. Like when I when I have to go get drawn blood, I have to like turn my head away and like it's not the pain, it's like seeing the needle going in my skin. I was like, I can't, I can't do it. I can watch yeah. the grossest stuff on, on in movies, but the moment anything <laughs> like that happens, I'm like, nope, I'm turn away. But, yeah. But then I'm curious, like, what do you like about working in the medium of the graphic novel, of the comic book? Like what brings you back to it? I think that for me, um, and this sort of goes back to what you were saying about how there's, you know, there's room for there to be that really intimate moment between Oliver and Janet, because it's setting up a vulnerability, right? Once you know that he needs something, he has something you can take away from him. And I wanted him to be a character who was sort of hanging on by a thread and who could very easily be destabilized. But to do that in a comic book, to just be able to tell a story about people rather than, you know, having to sit down and, you know, either write a memoir and expose all my vulnerabilities or write sort of a polemic and tell people how they ought to feel. I think that the comic, because of how it is, it's a very tight, controlled form. You're not allowed to talk a lot. It's something like 35 words to a panel before it starts to overwhelm the image, you know, and something like six or seven panels to a page. So you really do have to just step away from your argumentative instinct or your 
instinct to argue at people and convert them and tell them what to think, which I have that instinct in spades, and just tell the story, like get into the emotion and trust the other person is going to come into the emotion of the moment with you. Well, and like, like you're saying about like not writing a lot because you come from nonfiction where your whole point like was like having a a well-articulated, well-defended, like well-written argument that you're supporting for hundreds of pages. So it's such a, it's got to be such an interesting kind of mental exercise to shift into such a different form for some, like in so many different ways. That's cool. Yeah. And like a really heavily visual form, a really collaborative form. I think that most of the horror I've loved in my life has had that like intense sense of beauty to it. Like if you look at Picnic at Hanging Rock or, you know, David Mm -hmm. Lynch, you know, that's, it's, it's visceral and it's scary. The Shining, I think is like one of Kubrick's prettiest movies, strangely. Yeah, it is. You're right. You know, it's, that there's something about horror that just gives you license to just go all in and create this like immersive dream world. And I think comics lends itself really well to that because I know that for me, like I can remember lines of dialogue from comics, you know, like no slight to to writers because I am one, but the experiences I've had reading comics that have really gotten to me are just like, I just want to sit with a panel for an hour or two and just live inside it you know or there's like you know there's panels of uzumaki by junji ito that i just never want to see again (laughs) (laughs) fair they're upsetting very fair yeah yeah i I was while you were talking about that i was kind of thinking about there's there's a couple panels in this one with um casey who has been potentially replaced maybe not herself and it's like just her smiling face and it's like a close-up of her of her mouth and it's it's moments like that 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 will probably linger in my head um for a very long time and so i'm kind of curious because you said earlier about the kind of collaborative process of working on a comic so what what was it like working with um letizia cardinochi is that i'm not cardinichi yeah cardinichi and how did how did you two kind of come together to work on this letizia is really interesting to me as an artist because i had written this very very overstuffed script i was just like look i've done my homework i have books stacked up next to me i'm gonna put so much stuff in every panel of this comic you're gonna be amazed and letizia very kindly took like 80 percent of it out (laughs) it was just like let's focus so she's a really smart artist because she can always find the exact emotion of the panel and in particular her character designs are so so great and so Mm -hmm. eerie like when i saw casey it was crazy to me because she just like oh that's her that's that's exactly right you did it just right her, Oliver was really evocative and Oliver has to sort of go back and forth through his life story. And I was like, I don't know how we're going to handle this visually. And yeah. I think that just like the sensitivity with which Letizia traces Oliver through the, through the story is really, really well done. It's, I think that um, she was, she's somebody again, like Al Kaplan on Ma that I think Boom had just wa- been wanting to see more of for a while, had been wanting to work with for a while. And I was lucky enough to run across her when she was free, you know? That's so cool. So I'm curious, how did you get into the genre of horror? Have you been a horror genre fan? Like what's your history with the genre or just genre in general? Oh God. Yeah. I mean, I think I had, you know, the teenage fandom that everybody does where like, 
that was just like my weekends with friends was just like to get as many crappy VHS tapes as possible and stay up all night watching them. And it was me. (laughs) (laughs) Like it was just, it was always something that really, it felt right to me. And I think that like, I don't want to like do a, you know, Jude's sad life story interval here. But I think (laughs) when you're like a lonely kid or a weird kid, or you've had hard stuff happen to you, horror feels like a very, very reaffirming genre because it's like, you're right. Yeah, the world is a violent place and sad stuff happens and it's not fair. Like horror is a place where grief and anger and, you know, the experience of being the outsider, those are all just like very much welcomed in and validated in ways that you don't necessarily find it you don't necessarily find that every story has room for those experiences. I don't think. Yeah. yeah I've, I it comes up a couple times on the podcast before, but I, I kind of grew up in Alaska um, as a, <laughs> as a closeted queer kid. And yeah. we were, I was part of um, a military family. A lot of people on my block were military families. My, I ended up staying there for eight years. Most military people were there and gone. And so for me as like a very introverted and kid that knew he was different and knew he was a little weird was like, why I can't, I'm not having, having a hard time making friends. And so for me, genre was like a comfort thing. And so I, yeah. I, I get exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's just like when you are living in a relatively vulnerable body, and I think this is the neighbors too. I think yeah. the neighbors are sort of talking about that. Like they're, are certain modes of existence where when you walk down the street, you might really feel like violence is a real possibility. Mm-hmm. You know, you might get into that hypervigilant mode where like, you're never quite sure what somebody is thinking when they look at you and whether they're looking in your direction or looking at you or looking at you, you know, yeah. like it, that, that paranoid twitchy, mindset even though i you know i don't really live there all the time now anymore it's it's part of most marginalized people's day-to-day lives that you always have to be like hyper alert to whatever threat is going on in your environment and i think that that's kind of just what the neighbors is is that oliver's had enough bad stuff happen to him in his lifetime that he's you know he's willing to entertain the idea of murder elves and everybody else is like i don't think that murder elves (laughs) are a realistic right. possibility, but you know, you never and he's know. Like, you don't know what I've seen in this world. They are a possibility. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh my God. Do you remember how you got introduced to the genre or the, the first horror movie that you remember sort of um, like that you kind of remember as a kid? There are two memories I have that are really potent and powerful for me. One of them is that I was at this like, basement party with all these ratty dudes smoking pot and watching The Shining and when the old lady comes out of the bathtub the dude next to me is twice my size like shrieked and tried to escape <laughs> over the back of the couch nice. and I was very I was very happy I was like I am not as much of a wimp as you are this is this is validating for me this is a moment for me the Hell other yeah. memory I have is that um my dad rented Event Horizon because he liked science fiction and it had a spaceship on it. 
And like by the time we figured out what it actually was, we were just too far in. I think I was I was like nine or ten. I don't I don't think it was Oh no, not event horizon at nine. (laughs) Yeah, I was I was a small child and these people were like holding their eyeballs out on DVD for Lawrence Fishburne. It was great. I loved it. Event Horizon of this day is one of my favorite movies. I'm just like, this is upsetting. Let's go. <laughs> Hell yeah. Love that you're like, I like this. This is a good thing for yeah. me. I'm glad I've discovered this as a child. Yeah. The movie's really yeah. fucked up to watch as a kid, I have to say. Yeah. I can't imagine. It's fucked up to watch it now. <laughs> oh, no. It's like still fucked up. is like a permanent fixture in my like emotional... You know, like, there are some things that I just, like, never, ever get past. When we were talking about needles, do you remember the Christopher Pike novel where there was a nurse who killed somebody by putting an air bubble in their syringe? Yes! And that yes. scared me forever. Yes. That scared me fucking forever because I was like, is it that easy to kill somebody? And I was like, no fucking way. You can just put an air bubble in someone's goddamn, like, IV <laughs> tube and you can die? Like, I hate that. Yes. And it's I, the perfect crime. There's no evidence. They'll the never catch her. <laughs> Wait, another Christopher Pike, I think it was Christopher Pike book that I read. It was about scuba diving and it was just it like described very intensely like the bends and i never i was terrified of scuba diving because i was like i'm gonna get the bends and my brain's gonna boil in my skull from the pressure underwater and i was like i don't ever want to try that so that is to say ya novels from another era were really good at making you scared of a lot of really strange things especially air bubbles in various parts of your body (laughs) Wow, that unlocks a lot of memories. Thank you, Jude. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's there's no reason to ever go scuba diving. I think that Christopher Pike did us a service. I know? think he really did. <laughs> yeah. Were you a big wait? Did you like like reading scary stuff as a kid too? I did. I went through like the Christopher Pike, and then quick into Stephen King, and then by the time I ran out of Stephen King and was into Dean Koontz, I kind of petered out. But like, okay. yeah, I I liked a lot oh. of five. Barker in high school, I think. But I liked the fantasy more than I liked the horror, which I could not get my hands on at that point in time. Oh, okay. Fantasy. I love the the Christopher Pike to King to Koontz and then petering off because I had <laughs> I I was um because like I I was born in 81 and so I mine mm. was Goosebumps and by the time yeah. I knew about Christopher Pike, I went from Goosebumps to Stephen King to Dean Koontz. And then it also petered out. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> Dean Koontz is a very hit or miss for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, R.L. Stein is from is from where I'm from. He's from Westerville, Ohio. So oh, we had really? to write letters to him, you know, Aww. in middle school. Did he ever show up? That's so cool. He didn't that I'm aware of. Okay. I mean, maybe later, but not during my tenure, no. And no. I'm campaigning to be replaced to replace R.L. Stein as like the default the horror receiver. Westerville, Ohio. <laughs> Hell yeah! <laughs> it's time for a new. It's time for a new person, and I think it is. I think it is you. <laughs> <laughs> so, were you like easily scared as a kid by watching anything, or were you just like super into it? I mean, I think that I was one of those kids where like I was scared of a lot of random shit in day to day life. I was scared of roller yeah, coasters. Okay. 
I was scared mm-hmm. of the ocean. Valid. Reading something horrifying always felt so soothing to me or like watching something horrifying because it just felt like this is it. Now I know the worst thing that can happen. I remember. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry, what were you going to say? We're... I was just agreeing. No, I, I, just like thing. in second grade, I found this terrible gory book of like, think, I, I think it was about the Salem witch trials, but they might've just included some bonus torture in there. <laughs> like there was somebody who got like strapped to a wheel and rolled downhill at one point, And there was Giles Corey getting squished under rocks and it was just like, oh I would go back and I would read it every day because I'm like, the book scared me. But the more I read it, the more I am in control of this. Now I know oh. if I'm ever accused of witchcraft, what's going to happen? So. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it's very important knowledge to have. <laughs> I mean, it is. <laughs> so it sounded like it was a, it was definitely a comfort for you. Is it still the same now when, when you watch movies or consume um, horror literature? Is Are you just okay with it and is it comfort for you? I mean, my gore tolerance goes up and down. If I get the sense that I'm becoming like totally desensitized, I'll just step away for a while. Like, mm. okay. because I don't. I don't want to be at a place where I'm just like sort of blithely consuming horrors and it doesn't get to me. I think that that's, you know, that that cheapens it a little bit. But I still like to this day, I just I get on a treadmill and watch horror movies. And for some reason, that makes even really intense ones more manageable for me because I'm moving. Okay. So it's like I'm already running away, you know, <laughs> yeah. as as huh. I watch it. Huh. I'm going to start doing that now then. When I go to the... That might make it easier for me to go on the treadmill, honestly, if I'm watching horror movies. You have to be careful. Like, there are some times where there's a jump scare and you, like, almost die. Where, like, your hand <laughs> goes off. <laughs> <laughs> I just am imagining other people at the gym and you just like almost fall off because of a jump scare. That'd be, mm-hmm. yeah, be really hilarious to see. Yeah. Yeah. Have you seen anything recently that kind of um terrified you or or that like really stuck in your mind? What have I seen recently that really terrified me? Uh for some reason I watched Deep Red last yesterday, but I don't think I think that people know about Deep Red. I watched this um Amazon movie called In the Vast of Night. That's like, have you seen Pontypool? This sort yes. of oh, the, yeah, the radio show. Yeah. yeah, radio show zombie. This is radio show aliens. But like yep. the first time I saw it, it didn't really grab me. It struck me as kind of slow and very radio-y. And I think the second time I went into it knowing that it got as grim and sad as it got. And it just like, it really unsettled me. It was just these people dealing with something so far beyond their comprehension. And they were so doomed and i just you know so the vast of night really just sort of stuck with me that second time around i need to revisit it because uh what i i saw it back um i think when it was doing the the festival tour maybe or maybe when it just got released and the thing that really stuck out to me was the cinematography there's like some really cool tracking shots through through town and whatnot so i need to like revisit that and and just sort of appreciate it on a second watch i think I watched it a second time and it definitely was way better a second time. Like I really got into the, like what it was doing. I kind of could like, I got it a little bit faster so you could really yeah. throw yourself into it, but it's so beautiful. It's such a movie. It really oh. is. There is that tracking shot that goes like all the way through the town and then like yeah. through a Stunning. basketball game Stunning. while it's ongoing. And yeah. Yeah. 
oh god and then i don't think he's made anything since and i'm like where are you you obviously are a decent director but anyway um Um, and then before we talk about what you brought today what are some of your favorite horror movies now as an adult that you like to recommend that you go back to oh my favorite horror movies now i love audition i think that's just great and you know just Show that to somebody who doesn't know what's happening because it's just the best feeling kitty, ever. Kitty, 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 kitty. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love Audition. I love Pan's Labyrinth. It's too sad for me to watch that often, but it's one of the most beautiful movies ever made. And I think I I just have a real strong, strong affinity for like terrible, terrible 90s horror or like early 2000s horror. I'd recently watched like the first two Final Destinations and I was like, yeah, this is the good stuff. Hell yeah. Look, the Final Destination movies fucking rule. They are, they are what they are. Ah. They're fun Mm -hmm. and they're kind of dumb, but they're always entertaining because the kills are always good and that's all you need, man. They're good. My scariest ever movie theater experience was watching Final Destination 3 because I got really stoned and I went with a friend who was a Tibetan Buddhist and as we came out of the theater she was just like well it's like that sometimes some people have a hard karma (laughs) (laughs) you can have a really hard death if your karma is bad you're fucked and it was midnight and I had to walk home alone for like 10 blocks and I was just like I was so unhappy That is amazing. And you're like, well, I guess what terrible thing is going to happen if you walking home from the movie theater now? Is my karma good or is it bad? Yeah. Wow. Incredible note to end on with that, like that for that movie. Like, at least she's making mm. it just do be like that sometimes. Is really what she said. <laughs> <laughs> then just. <laughs> wow. It's like that for some people. Like, are you sure? <sighs> <laughs> what do you mean? What does that the mean? subway crash too, where like people were like getting yes. cut in half by subway cars. Yes. Oh, jeez. Like, um. Uh, all right, Jude. We've talked about your horror history and the neighbors, but what what movie question mark did you bring with you today for us to discuss? I did not bring you a movie because the the assignment here is early fears, and I am bringing you my deep, deep early fear which is Unsolved Mysteries, specifically Unsolved Mysteries, Season 2, Episode 2, Jesus Statue. Or I believe this segment is technically called Miracle Cross. So Unsolved Mysteries, if you are unfamiliar, combines dramatic reenactments, interviews, and updates to tell the stories of real mysteries from human to the supernatural. This episode includes Realtor Murder, Miracle Cross, Update Robin Hood, and Nudist Fraud. <laughs> I man, I, I did not watch wait. the whole episode. I know we only are talking about this segment, but I did watch the whole episode. So right, <laughs> no, it starts off. It starts off with a bang, as it were, with the <laughs> right? reenactment of realtor murder. Jeez, <laughs> um, oh, I am so excited to chat with you about this because I have not thought about unsolved mysteries for decades, and watching it to prep for this was like. An experience. So I, I, yeah. I, want, I want you to take us back. How, how did you see this? How old were you? What about this terrified you? I, I need to hear your horror story for this because I have one as well for for this series. Yeah, I would have been no older than first grade for this because okay, I remember wow. specifically the apartment that I was living in, 
And my brother and I just terrified each other every week by sitting down and watching Unsolved Mysteries together. It got to the point where, like, he would start humming the theme song and I'd have to run out of the room. I was just deeply disturbed <laughs> by it. But It's I creepy. Think, yeah. I, I can't really do it, but, you know, if I were doing it well, you'd be terrified right now. <laughs> So Miracle Cross is, I should contextualize this by telling you that, like, I am I grew up very deeply Catholic, and I really appreciate Robert Stack, like, walking through and being like, the Catholics believe in miracles. Like, he's describing these people no one has ever heard of. That, like, <laughs> it's my live. favorite. The Catholics. I was like, thank <laughs> you, Catholic. Robert Stack, for explaining the Catholics to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and... So, um, should I tell you what happens in, in Miracle Cross so that I can tell you about my, my profound trauma? Please do. Okay. So in Miracle Cross, there is, first of all, there's just like a rundown of, you know, recent miracles, like the, you know, the sun touching the earth and Fatima, which I had heard about. And it was objectively terrifying that the sun could dislocate itself from the sky and incinerate us all. But... I was, you know, <laughs> God was in control. There are some people in Yugoslavia who say that the Virgin Mary is appearing to them every week to tell them that the end of the world is nigh. Also a lot for a first grader to take in. But then you go to this town in the middle of nowhere, suffering through a recession, and they have their cross that they're very proud of. And let me tell you, they should not be proud of it. It is a grody fucking cross. It's horrifying. Like, the Jesus is like bleeding heavily. And like they start <sighs> in an interview with the artist being like, I really wanted to paint around the eyes to get the color of death. Like Jesus is physically it's... in agony. Like Catholics are insane. Like we are yeah. insane people. Like I grew up Catholic too. And we just want, like we take pride in the most dead looking Jesus, but also the most beautiful looking Jesus. And it's like, you know what? <laughs> Incredible. 10 out of 10. Yeah. <laughs> But, like, this is, like, a physically very miserable Jesus. Like, if you remember the part in The Ring when Amber Tamlin gets sucked into the closet, and they open the closet, <laughs> yes. and her jaw falls open, like, that's what Jesus looks like. I loved this interview with, with, with the artist, by the way, where he, he <gasps> says he did the eyes last of all, painted them blue-gray in the retina, then accents to show the color of death. The color of death. Okay. So, cut to... Jesus is up there during service. An altar boy, who, by the way, is an altar man with a full-on mustache. (laughs) (laughs) The reenactments in this. I love the reenactments so much. Yeah. So good. Uh, Notices that, like, Jesus, the Jesus statue, whose eyes are supposed to be open and agonized, is now closed. So now it's like, Jesus died up there during the service everybody like the whole town comes in they examine him the guy who examined it is like no jesus's eyes were half open and he was weeping and i could see the flesh you know and like somebody else is like it looked as if his eyes had been burnt with some sort of force field of energy yeah, he was like, <laughs> it was the energy and i was like what do you fucking mean by energy <laughs> <laughs> Like, at some point, you know, to adult me, it becomes clear that these people are full of shit because they're like, and he said it would just be just like this other town where there would be a whole bunch of tourists visiting to see our amazing crying cross. But no, like, as a first grader, Jesus is dying, his eyes are melting, he's got 
energy. At one point, the priest is like, I have considered that it could be something evil. And I'm like, yeah, because you've seen <laughs> yeah. that cross. And it is evil. It's, it's, it's palpably evil. evil. <laughs> and so, like, yeah. It really... And then I was just like, I went to my mother and I was like, mom, that doesn't really happen, does it? Like, Jesus can't actually get off the cross or anything, can he? And she was like, no, there's actually, there are a lot of statues that cry, sometimes tears of blood. And I was like, okay, that's it. (laughs) Because there are statues and crucifixes of Jesus all over our house. Any one of them at this point could pose a threat. Oh no. It could it could happen. Like I remember just like going up to bed and getting into bed and looking at the crucifix hanging over my bed and just being like, Mom! She had to take Jesus out of the room for the night. (laughs) (laughs) How to take Jesus out of the room. Oh my god. (laughs) How horrifying. Oh my god. But like, how could you not be fucking terrified of the of any crucifix after seeing that? like 22 feet in the air like floating on a chain from Mm. the ceiling this like jesus towering over everybody and they're like examining the eyes how could you not be terrified of every crucifix i'd be watching the eyes like are they moving are you blinking are you you wet i'd be like seriously like scrubbing to make sure there's no tears coming out of it terry are you wet come on and all of these people are so happy about it like that just adds like there's like a wicker man level of uncanniness where they're looking at this horrifying tortured statue that's going through its death agonies supposedly like during the service and they're like we think jesus opened closed his eyes so everybody would open theirs like they really <laughs> the, the so nephew proud. that says that is so funny <laughs> that just like yeah because it was like a i think it was the nephew of the the state trooper and he's yeah. like i had to go up there and look because i can see things that other people don't because i'm trained <laughs> to be looking and he's like and then my nephew when, when he says that his nephew said that that his eyes are closed so everyone else's would be open i started cackling madly <laughs> at that point i was like that is that is too perfect well, and then like it it ends with them being like, and the ta- and it was a miracle because the town came out of a recession. And I was like, well, you know, yeah. good for them. <laughs> good good, for, good I guess. for them. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's, we all have our little miracles. Some of us, I don't know, like you could be the town from Prancer. You could claim that you found one of Santa's reindeer. Like there's, there's a lot that you could do that's not, there's like, It's really just, and I mean, I think that this is the Unsolved Mysteries ethos, is that, like, when you go into it, what makes it scary is how flatly all of this is presented. Like, the the context of the show was just, like, I mean, if you look at the, the actual segments on this show in its entirety, it's like, realtor murder, somebody shot a realtor. Um, and that's really, like, literally it. Somebody shot a realtor. Yeah, I was um, <laughs> I was really surprised at how quick that segment was. It's just like, well, this happened. Now let's yeah. talk about this crucifix. <laughs> exactly. Like, realtor murder. Right after realtor murder, crucifix. And then there's just a guy who stole some Medicaid money. Like, it's all presented with the same, like, this is a fucked up thing that happened. Like, but it's it's presented with the voice of authority. So, yeah. like, yeah. that would always be the most disturbing thing about the show, is that it would just be, like, murder, murder, embezzlement, aliens, murder, murder, embezzlement, ghost, murder, 
nudist colony, you know, <laughs> nudist colony. Yeah, the nudist colony story is actually horrible. It's actually it just actually like, is. Oh. Okay, yeah. I, was, I was laughing while listening to it, and then I was, I got to the end where he's like, "Oh yeah, he would know he was a child molester." I was like, "Oh, this isn't funny anymore. Like, this is not right? funny. Like, this isn't the silly thing you thought it was. This guy's like actually a terrible person." I do love I though they're like. Minutes after the broadcast, people definitely <laughs> recognized who this guy was. Yeah. And we arrested him. And I was like, yeah. good for you, Unsolved Mysteries. Good for good Unsolved for Mysteries. But it is, it's really uncomfortable because, like, they stage his arrest at the nudist colony. So they're doing, like, full-on Austin Powers-level gigs where, like, the police officer's yes! hat yes! has to be yes! at a certain point in the screen. <laughs> I thought that was really funny where he was like sitting down, he stands up and there's like a shoulder place just at his junk level so that we can't yeah. see any genitalia. So good. I, just, I like, didn't that, think with the Austin Powers so, comparison, that's so funny. I didn't funny. either, but that's hilarious that he said that. Uh, I, so I, I have to know, was this something that you and your brother would watch a lot, the, the show? Oh yeah, like every week, yes. Every week. This is just, this is the one where like I was just most immediately surrounded by danger right after watching it. Like, the murders were right off my back, but, like, I had too much Jesus in the house to let this one slide. <laughs> How long did your fear of Jesus last? I mean, to this day, really. But, wait, that's um, true. I was like, wait, hold on, you're Catholic, the Catholic guilt runs deep, I, I should word this more. <laughs> or grow up Catholic, rather. I don't know if you're still practicing. But yeah, I mean, I eventually, like... It had to be sort of explained to me that Jesus was doing this as like a nice thing and that it was a miracle and that I should hope for it to happen. And at that point, like the Catholic mythos is so bloody anyway. You have like St. Lucy who gouged out her own eyes and put them on a plate. And, you know, you have every girl saint in the canon basically dies in some kind of horrible way because she won't marry a Roman. You know, like you're sort of just like Jesus likes scaring people. That's just what he does. Jesus is is into weird shit. So the moment that you said Unsolved Mysteries, the thing that popped in my head was also from the same season. Um, I think it was um, just a couple episodes later. Uh, where was it? All right. I have it pulled up and it was, um, an episode that had a segment involving two people named Gary and Terry Magno, and they were psychic, um, surgeons. And there was like this segment where they were basically fleecing people in this, in old people who were sick and were going to him. And it kind of, it started out where like it would show, um, a reenactment of, Gary just like it, it was they basically bring these people in and they were um, aside from like underwear, they were they were completely naked and he would like rub on their belly. And then the image looked like his hands were going inside and then he was pulling out tissue like evil tissue and putting in a bowl <laughs> that that his wife was was holding. And so it was like just this image of, of him and the reenactment is like it literally it felt like the fingers were going into the skin and there was like blood seeping out and then he was pulling out this like 
tumor or something and just throwing it in in like this bucket and then the person would lean over roll over and he would do the same thing again on like the leg or whatever and i remember this has vividly been stuck in my head to the point that um last night i reached out on twitter is like i don't know what episode this is because there's 600 episodes of this show and i was like i I know it was probably in the late 80s early 90s and i was like i don't know what episode this is can anyone help me because i wanted to watch it and someone did and said it was this episode and i i had to go online and find it and watch it to remind myself. And basically, it, t- it turns out that they were that this is like a a big scam that happens all the time, or like not all the time, but like it it was this big scam thing where they would have little baggies filled with like chicken parts and chicken blood oh, that they would hide yeah. on the um the like the table that they were sitting on, and they would just basically plop that down like sleight of hand, and they would be pulling out from the little baggie, this gore, and putting it into the bowl. But in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, my God, someone can, like, this person's fake, but can someone reach into your body and and pull that shit out? Like, that is what was in my head. And it was, um, it looks like it was probably episode six of the same season or episode four of the same season. And so it would have been 89. So I would have been eight years old when I saw it. And that is... That is stuck in my head. I have not thought about Unsolved Mysteries for decades, but that image of him reaching into someone and pulling out the little goop has been lodged in my brain ever since. <laughs> and so that that for me is my is my Unsolved Mysteries scarred for life moment. Oh god. And it's the total flat affect. It's that everybody has like the first grade teacher hair and they're all wearing like big ugly sweatshirts and they have like the you know the social studies teacher beard and it just like and then just somebody's reaching in and fucking pulling out organs it's such a like i think the weird photorealism like the cheapness of it makes it so haunting they use like some of the real people from the story and the reenactments and that to me is like what is this like it, that just like makes it so weird to me, like in, in an interesting way of like a whoa, that's the actual brother, and like that's going to be a weird situation for them to be completely reenacting like this actual moment from their lives. Like, it's just very interesting how they tackle it. Yeah, like the altar man is like I'm pretty sure he's himself in both oh, yeah. the interview and the reenactment because you can't you can't replace Jim. Jim's a an essential part of this story. That mustache, that, that like mustache. curly little mullet situation. But then like during realtor murder in which to recap a realtor gets murdered and his coworkers run out of the office. Like are those his actual coworkers? They are. Or, yeah. What? yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. They fucking were. Here, re like why don't you live through this probably very traumatizing moment of your <laughs> life again where what yes. your coworker got shot in front of you and you thought that you were going to die? Why don't you reenact it for the camera to put on tea on fucking exactly. like, television? Right. And it's like it's yeah, it's like a strange disjoint. It's like a dreamlike thing where like you hear him in voiceover like one of the guys being like, "Yeah, I was pretty sure I was going to die and I just ran out of the building because I didn't know what was going to happen next. And then you, like, see him awkwardly walking down the hallway next to this, like, you know, community theater criminal holding a gun at him. <laughs> like, you can see his face being like, am I conveying fear? Like, is this yeah, is this I- how I would have looked? <laughs> like, 
It's so funny because um, I remember, obviously, the, the reenactments, because I remember the, the moment of him, you know, reaching in on the psychic surgery part. And so I knew that there were reenactments. But when it opened up and it said, whenever possible, we, we use the same people that, you know, live through the event. I, I, as an adult, I'm like going, that's actually kind of horrifying. And I did think that that realtor murder segment was actually more effective as a reenactment than a lot of reenactments that they do today. Because it just, it, I don't know, there was just the... Yes, eventually the the definitely community theater esque killer definitely kind of made me giggle. But in the beginning, when he just walks in there and shoots the man, I was like, Jesus, this is <laughs> yeah. this is this is wild. It's, it's abrupt. It's yeah. it, there's not a lot of setup for that. <laughs> no, and I think that that is another thing that makes unsolved mysteries so um, palpable is that there's no ending to that. It's just like. Yeah. We're left with answer with, with with questions. It where the wife's like, I wish I knew what happened and why, you know, why this all happened. And then it's like, okay, we're moving on to the crucifix. And so it's like this, it doesn't give you any sense of closure. And even the crucifix one, while there are um, you know, they I really appreciated that they had the the Catholic scholar come on and talk about how people could potentially, you know, see this, and then they had the diocese come in and and talk about how this wasn't a miracle and all that kind of stuff. But like it still leaves you without any kind of sense of what really happened. Yeah. I know it's very hard for shows like this to be objective because it is like it's it's, it's sensational, but it feels mm-hmm. more objective than a lot of shows like this ever have. Like again, I think because it is that flat affectation, it's like they're presenting the facts and they're kind of letting you do a lot of the work in terms of hyping it up to be scarier or funnier. And I I because I actually didn't really watch. I've never this is actually the first time I've watched Unsolved Mysteries. Like actually, mm-hmm. so I did not have the experience watching it growing up, but. I appreciate the way that obviously they're playing it up as a show, but at the same time, they're not trying to make it too sensational. And that balance is really cool to see, especially like in the eighties and how they're in the early nineties and how they were handling that, especially like on really popular television. Cause this was incredibly popular, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was huge. It was hugely influential um, for America, Americana culture. I think that you can kind of see that in this episode where there's the updates where they will come back to episodes that they've done in the past with, um, you know, people have caught the, the person. They will give you sort of like some kind of closure for some of the episodes. And I think actually there was um, a little bit of a closure with the the psychic uh, um, the psychic surgeon episode a little bit like a, maybe a season later or a few episodes later where they um, – like this one, minutes after, a little bit after it aired, people ended up like coming in with tips and whatnot. And I think that's that's wild when you th- when you think about the kind of the the impact this had on catching criminals in a way. It's it, that's that part of it is so weird to me now. Yeah, and that's still like true crime. I think is a genre that's really bogged down with a lot of stuff. It's bogged down with a lot of propaganda. Propaganda. Um, mm-hmm. It's sort of enforces the idea that sending someone to prison is the best thing that could ever possibly happen. There's a lot of people have said that like as a survivor or the family member of someone, you know, who was killed, like it's, it's re-traumatizing and re-victimizing in a lot of ways to have something terrible in your life become entertainment. Like, I think there are a lot, a lot of things that you could say about like whether unsolved mysteries is really ultimately honoring the dead realtors yeah. of the world by putting them in the same episode as like the magic Jesus. 
But like, let's say that I was in first grade and I didn't know any of that yet. Like one of the things about true crime is that like, it actually does sometimes lead to case closures. Someone will call with a lead, like something that, you know, someone who was missing will be located, you know, like, and that's why it's, it's weird obsessive focus on like dead white ladies is, is fucked up in part, right? Because mm-hmm. there's a whole lot of spectacle surrounding the deaths of some people and a whole lot of silence surrounding the deaths of others. Yeah, I would actually be so interested in a breakdown of, like, the races of people's cases they cover in Unsolved I'm, And I, I yeah. bet you that's been done, but I would be very curious to see the bre- like the breakdown of those kinds of stories. Because you're so right. Like, yeah. you know, a, a true... And I feel like Unsolved... I mean, Unsolved Mystery, I know a lot of people who are into true crime, like, that was kind of the gateway into it, I feel like, for a lot of yeah. people, too. Like, this kind of show. Like, yeah. that gateway into the true crime world. And I'm not saying... I'm not good or bad, necessarily, but leaning more towards the negative, just in how we've seen people's relationships with true crime kind of evolve into what they are today, which is very fascinating. But... Yeah. It is really weird to think about how unsolved mysteries might have stoked a lot of very interesting fires about like cultural consciousness regarding these true crime cases and things yeah. like that. Also, like conflating unsolved mysteries of actual people's murders with crying Jesus is like kind of disrespectful <laughs> if you weird. really like get down to it. It's like mm, I don't think those are all on the same level, but okay. <laughs> yeah, especially since like. As a kid, I was there for crying Jesus. Like, yeah, exactly. I did not, like, exactly. Yeah. Everyone's there exactly. for the aliens. Like, we all yeah. know everyone wanted to go to the Unsolved Mysteries for the creepy stuff. So it's like... Yeah. <laughs> and exactly. that's what, like, that's what stuck in my head um, all of these years is those little segments that were about the supernatural. Like, I didn't care yeah. about the rest of it as, as a kid growing up watching it. I wanted to know about the, the crying. And I actually do remember this episode... Uh, when I started watching it with with the Jesus, I was like, "Oh my God, this this is this brought me back to being a kid." But it's all these little moments, and there's one about like lights in the sky that I think were UFO. There's like all of those, and as a kid, that's the stuff that kind of reeled me in. Whereas, like, I think a lot of adults were more interested in the who the true crime fascination of it. But like for me, it was these moments: the crying Jesus, the UFOs, the the psychic um, surgery, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, because it's just like that thing. And I mean, I think that there's there's a sense of wonder in horror, weirdly. Like, what this really reminds me of is, like, going past newsstands, like, grocery store news aisles in the 80s. And just, like, there would be, you know, like, a soap opera magazine, and there'd be Princess Die, and then there'd be Batboy. You know, Batboy. Yeah. I read my mind because I was literally thinking Wiki World News with Batboy on the cover. That, yes, yes. <laughs> like it just it gave this weird view of like the world of adult information, where like they knew stuff they were not letting on because right. there was just like there were celebrities, there was TV, there was the president, and there was Batboy, and that was, was just Bat like Boy. sort of part of it. It was all a level playing field, and you were kind of left with this destabilizing view of the world as like potentially containing much more to be scared of or to wonder at to be awestruck by than you ever knew like I remember um I grew up near OSU and OSU famously this was like on an an episode of the X-Files but it's also a true story they received a radio pattern that was so coherent they thought it had to be a signal of alien life and they you know dismissed it pretty quickly they you know strange things happen 
But like, I remember just seeing that pinned up on somebody's wall. And I managed at a slumber party to convince like four second grade girls that we needed to build a shelter because the aliens were coming. Like, I was just like, I read it. It was in the news. It is real. They are out there. They are coming. And like, yes. I mean, yes. I had a similar experience because my I watched. Um, I don't know what it was. It was like one of those Discovery Channel or History Channel specials where they're hunting monsters. And like, yeah. To me, I was when I was like four or five. I thought those were channels that were always true. So when I saw them chasing the fucking chupacabra, I was like, oh my god, the chupacabra is real, and I'm going to die because the chupacabra is going to fly up to my window and suck the blood out of me. And yeah. because my dad sucks and is the worst, and I'm not saying that as a joke, he would egg me on and be like, oh yeah, the chupacabra is coming <laughs> for you. And like, I we lived in this like really tiny apartment and out of the window there was like, I don't even remember what it was, but there's like a red light on it. It was just like a normal thing you'd have. I, I can't even, I think it was from a car, but I thought it was the eyes of a chupacabra oh, watching no. me sleep. And so for yeah. years, the Chupacabra special on whatever channel made me think that the Chupacabra, which is a Mexican, like, cryptid. I live in Maryland, but I was convinced <laughs> that the Chupacabra had made a journey up to Maryland to mm-hmm. come for me. Mm-hmm. So these things fuck you up when you're a kid and you don't know, like, actually have concepts of what you just, like, know what you think is supposed to have true stuff on it. And when it has the fake shit on it, you're like... <laughs> well, and when you were talking, Jude, I was thinking about how Unsolved Mysteries is literally like going to the 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 aisles on, on the on like the, the shopping where you will have soap opera stuff, you will have news and you will have the weekly world news. And so this is sort of like a microcosm of that experience of being in waiting in line to pay for something at a grocery store and seeing all the like magazines that are there that are everything from Reader's Digest to um the National Enquirer to all of that kind of salaciousness and then also like news items and then the Weekly World News. And that that is Unsolved Mysteries to a T right there. Yeah, exactly. And like, I just I think that there's there's something really wonderful to that experience, just being a yeah. kid and being completely unprepared for the world and being willing to believe whatever grownups tell you. And for, like, Robert Stack to be walking down the aisles of a church being like, the Vatican has investigated this, and they've found that there's no evidence of a miracle. Or is there, like, the very serious (laughs) Vatican investigation that Robert Stack is reporting on? Like... I also I I forgot about him because like I was trying to remember before I had watched this like I because I think of gosh what was it um the uh, America's Most Wanted with who who was the host of that I'm trying to remember uh, what his name was yeah oh, John Walsh John yeah. Walsh all, all of those men run together in my head I'm sorry they all look the same to me in my brain they do and so like I was like who was it that but the moment Robert Stack comes on and you hear his voice I was like it transported me back to watching this as a kid I was like oh my god that is Robert Stack and that voice just <laughs> unlocked all these memories of this show for me it was such it was such a weird nostalgic trip watching yeah. this episode because of his voice and I think I think for some reason they make Robert Stack really terrifying in the show. Like they do, like, I don't know why the choice is always to have him walking down dark alleys surrounded by fog. Like it's visually, it's meant to cue mystery, but it's also like, 
how Jason Voorhees gets filmed a lot. He's just proceeding towards you out of the dark. I was like, is Robert Stack going to walk out of my closet? (laughs) Like, start talking about, like, the monsters that are hiding in there? Like, it is, he is filmed so creepily. And I think that is what kind of keyed in with this watch for me was the music that played. I was listening to it and I was like, this reminds me of some of the horror movie themes from the 80s that I would be watching. Mm-hmm. Like I was getting, a, for some reason, a Nightmare on Elm Street vibes from the the way the this kind of synthesized <laughs> music was playing. And so yeah. it was like that combined with Robert Stack walking out of fog, combined with the very weird disjointedness. It feels kind of like you're watching like a nightmarish episode of like, we're going to go from a realtor being shot to to crying Jesus, to a nudist colony. It just, it has this very weird nightmare logic feel in between the episodes. And so that combined with Robert Stack, combined with Nightmare on Street music, and I was like, man, no wonder why this thing is like stuck in my head all of these years. Yeah, it's just like, it's very uncanny. Like, I mean, I know there's a lot of like, corny sort of reddit horror that's like remember that show you watched as a kid well actually it was a fake tv show like that but that's kind of what this feels like you can never quite tell whether you saw an episode of unsolved mysteries about something or maybe you just had a weird dream about it right but that's literally why i went on twitter last night and was like is this a thing? Am I misremembering something? <laughs> because it sounds so in, it sounds so bonkers. The idea of like someone, you know, this image of him reaching into a person's body and pulling out gunk that I was like, this could have been a nightmare or some kind of like weird thing that I had disjointed from watching movies as a kid. Because that's the feel that this this show gives you. It's that kind of it's it's definitely that weirdness. Yeah. Like, and I mean I think that just the ability to leave that sort of residue in your unconscious where like when I saw that horrifying Amber Tamblyn Jesus for the first time in like you know 30 years I was so like I was relieved that he didn't just live in me because it just it's like I had so many just like vivid nightmares and like mental images of like blood and gore dripping off every crucifix in my house for a long long time you know like every time i go to church i'd look up at the big jesus and i'd be like oh my god is he gonna open his eyes and look at me is he gonna open his eyes look at me is he i was so i like and just to like go back and be like okay i didn't make this up that's a weird thing to show your parishioners and it would have been upsetting for a kid. Like, yeah. It, yeah. Absolutely. Well, I mean, like, in the show, they're like, they all were crying in the back room and the guy, the reverend came back and he's like, what's wrong? They're like, Jesus looked at us and they were like yeah. saying it was because they were excited. But I'm like, they were definitely freaking the fuck out too. They're like, yeah. Jesus looked at me. <laughs> or Jesus died right in front of me. What's going on? Yeah. Like I saw Jesus cry weeping tears out of his burnt out eye sockets over the immense pain he was in good news we're gonna get you know like they're they're it was the town's back guys (laughs) (laughs) wow i'm so well wow (laughs) so i was i this kind of sent me on a rabbit hole of digging into the story because i was like because sometimes as i was watching this is like is this real did this stuff really happen? And so I did do some Googling and um, I did find out that there, there are like articles from Washington Post um, from this time that this happened. And in fact, the uh, the pastor, the Reverend Vincent um, Chip, 
Chitvochik, I'm not, I cannot pronounce that last name, unfortunately, yeah. um, resigned, like, after the report of the Diocese of Pittsburgh that no miracle happened, he actually resigned and left, and he could not be reached for comment. They said that he was encouraged to step down. It was thought, and he agreed that his leaving would bring some sort of peace and quiet to the parish. And so it's kind of a sad little afternote to this, because I do think that this was sort of, because uh, they, they kind of do a little bit of a... Of, um, a connection to this and the Yugoslavian um, med. I gosh, again, I cannot pronounce these these. It's like these places. or something. Yeah, yeah, which a lot of this congregation apparently may have come from, and so the idea that maybe that they could bring sort of an economic boost to this town that was failing mm-hmm. by doing this, and then because of the disgrace, you know, with with the fact that the. The, the diocese would say that this is not a miracle. He ended up re- resigning. And I was like, whatever happened to him? And I did see, um, I did find an obituary from about him Jesus. from Chicago. I know, like I, I went on a deep dive on this. And you really did. He, he was, um, he was a pastor at other places. Like he, he continued on in different areas throughout um, the United States in going through his, this, this stuff. So like, he didn't, it didn't like ruin him, but like, it's kind of sad to think that the, the side note huh. to this is that even though it was probably done to try to bring some sort of economic boom to the town, it didn't yeah. work. And yeah. he had to resign in disgrace. <laughs> sad. Jesus that's, that's terrifying. That like, so the implication is that they, they thought he had been tampering with Jesus or... Yeah, the- they were the, okay. like that they had made it up basically yeah. Yeah, yeah that it was like and i mean i think that that's not i think that anybody who thinks that they made it up like i don't know i there was a weird sort of like um i don't know what you call it uh evangelical catholicism in ohio the laying on of hands charismatic mm-hmm. that's what it's called yep um mm-hmm. and like I've seen people lay on hands. I've seen people claim to cure each other. I've seen people speak in tongues. I even spoke in tongues once or twice myself when I was like real little. Damn. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Like, oh, I, shit. I don't, but like, the, I think that like what's being described there is not so much like an intentional prank to, you know, con the town or like boost the town's economy. It feels like something, the way these things happen, something slightly freaky happens and somebody else reacts and then you react according to their reaction. And before long, everybody knows that the old lady at the edge of town is a witch and you need to burn her. In this case, all they did was decide that Jesus died in front of them. You know, this is like in, in in the vast historical scheme of things, this is not the worst one of these has ever gone. No, absolutely not. Yeah, exactly. I was actually quite surprised. Like, oh, they're seems to be a quasi happy ending to this like this could have gone very poorly for that town i i suppose but and i'm i'm trying yeah. to cuz i i did find something else too that that said that in like the the diocese um report was that there was no convincing evidence and i can't find the quote but basically that that they said that they believe that the people that witnessed it really thought that they witnessed it like it was definitely yeah. a little yeah. note attached to that that it wasn't like that it was over overwrought or whatever that they actually believed in their deepest of hearts that, that this happened. And so I did think that that was an interesting little addition to the the report that the, the diocese, I guess, brought down yeah. on it. 
That's grim, religious though. belief, it is. though. I mean, religious belief is like it's so fucking powerful. I mean, like it's easy for people who like aren't in it to dismiss, but like I mean, I've seen it. I feel like we've all seen like how when we've. I mean, we all know how like religious fervor what it can do. It's it is wild, like the power of persuasion, especially when it comes to religion. It's kind of scary. Yeah. I didn't know that you got kicked out if they found out you did a fake miracle. That's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> that dissuades yeah. reports of miracles. There's probably miracles happening all over, and everybody's like, it's an edge case. It's an edge case. We don't we don't want to get the Vatican involved. I was laughing at the idea of this Vatican investigation, and now I know not yeah. to contact the Vatican. They will they will come down on you. They don't care about exorcisms and saving people. <laughs> but like, I mean not to be, you know, insensitive, but of all the bad things that has ever happened in a Catholic church, this is the one that a priest has to resign over. You I was going to say, little... like, seriously, uh, that is the one? <laughs> yes. I was thinking the same thing. Like, yeah. okay, right. great, awesome. And so what they've got, they've got all their resources devoted to, like, fake statue crying investigations. They don't have time to deal with the that rest of it. That distracts from the real problems of the Catholic <laughs> church. Duh. <laughs> um, do we want to wrap uh, up and give this a rating out of five? Sounds okay. good to me. All right, Terry, you are the first. How many crying crucifixes out of five do you give on this 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 particular episode of Unsolved Mysteries? Mysteries. Jesus. You know, it's it's really it's really weird to rate the this because for me, there's a lot of nostalgia with this, and so watching this in terms of like a nostalgic rating, this is like a five for me just because it brought me back to the feeling of being a kid and being terrified and also confused watching these on a weekly basis. And the idea that, that we are going from real life murders to something very supernatural to a nudist colony, or in the episode that I saw the, the psychic surgery surrounded by updates on murders and updates on all that kind of stuff it just it's it's weird to me but it also was part of my childhood and so on the nostalgic side i'm giving this a five but like watching it back i it's this isn't something that i will probably go revisit a whole lot i'm gonna probably say like on a non-nostalgic it would be like a two and a half for me or maybe a three at the most but nostalgic it's it's a five what about you mary beth i'm curious because you have no nostalgia that's ties to this so funny because i want to go watch all of them now like i'm so curious <laughs> yeah like i like i'm so into there's 600 it. Like, of I, them i just like i don't know there's just something about it that i was like super into and i was like i i, I like like i know what it is and but it's kind of it's like it feels like a pure form of what true crime has become. And I'm like, there's something like simple about unsolved mysteries in a way that I like kind of was really into. I'm going to give it a three and a half. Like, yeah, there's lots of problems, but I'm so glad I watched it. And now I want to watch more unsolved mysteries. So, you know, I do want to say side note, the one to watch is because this is another one that stuck in my, in my head is the Circleville writer, which is an episode from, um, I think season seven, but literally it is about um, Circleville, Ohio, where residents started receiving strange letters detailing personal information about their lives. And it goes into some very weird territory, including like a booby trapped billboard that had a gun pointed where if someone tried to take it down, it would shoot them like wild. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Okay, cool. That's powerful. Can't I love wait. that. Can't I wait. love that. Um, Jude, you have the final word. 
How many crying crucifixes out of five are you giving this episode of Unsolved Mysteries? All right. I gotta say, lives were ruined. Um, <laughs> realtors murdered. Um, altar boys became altar men. Like, this has, this has everything you want out of an Unsolved True. Mysteries. Including, you know, like an Austin Powers gag at the end. So I'm going to, I'm going to give it on an Unsolved Mysteries scale grading on a curve. I'm going to give it five out of five. I'm going to give That's it four fair. out of five in the vast, in the, in the history of, you know, Hell yeah. of entertainment. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's Sweet. very fair. Uh, well, thank you so much, Jude, for, for joining us, bringing me back to being an eight-year-old kid watching this, this stuff. Um, where can our listeners find you? And the floor is yours to plug away with whatever you can talk about. Um, the easiest way to keep track of me now is to follow my newsletter, which is jude-doyle.ghost.io. Um, and I am also still sort of on Twitter. I'm on Blue Sky a lot on judedoyle.bsky.social, and I'm still on Twitter at byjudedoyle. Cool. Cool. And we'll have all that in the description of the podcast, everybody, as well as links to get Jude's work. Um, Thank you. You've heard from us listeners, but we want to hear from you. What was your experience with Unsolved Mysteries? Did you have a favorite episode? Tell me which ones I should watch. Uh, let us know by sending us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail.com, or you can reach out to us directly on social media. I am at mbmcandrews on Twitter, and I'm at mb.mcandrews on Instagram. And I'm at Gaily Dreadful everywhere. And of course, do not forget to follow the podcast on social media at Scarred Podcast on Twitter and Blue Sky and at Scarred for Life Podcast on Instagram. And please don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe. And if you want to help support us, we do have a Patreon. Thank you, Derek Carr, for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please stay safe out there. But most importantly, stay creepy. And until next time. <laughs>